0: Book Seven, Chapter forty seven of Robert Ellesmere by Mary Augusta Ward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book Seven, Chapter forty seven. Meanwhile the Laburns were at Burwood again. Rose's summer, indeed, was much varied by visits to country houses, many of them belonging to friends and acquaintances of the Flaxman family, by concerts and the demands of several new and exciting artistic friendships but she was seldom loath to come back to the little bare valley and the grey-walled house. Even the rain, which poured down in August, quite unabashed by any consciousness of fine weather elsewhere, was not as intolerable to her as in past days. The girl was not herself. There was visible in her not only that general softening and deepening of character which had been the consequence of her trouble in the spring, but a painful ennui she could hardly disguise, a longing for she knew not what she was beginning to take the homage paid to her gift and her beauty with a quiet dignity, which was in no sense false modesty, but implied a certain clearness of vision, curious and disquieting in so young and dazzling a creature. And when she came home from her travels, she would develop a taste for long walks, breasting the mountains in rain or sun, penetrating to their austerest solitudes alone, as though haunted by that profound saying of Obermann, "'Man is not made for enjoyment only.' La tristesse fait aussi partie de ces vastes boisons. What, indeed, was it that ailed her? In her lonely moments, especially in those moments among the high fells, beside some little tarn or streamlet, while the sheets of mist swept by her, or the great clouds dappled the spreading sides of the hills, she thought often of Langham, of that first thrill of passion which had passed through her, delusive and abortive, like one of those first thrills of spring which bring out the buds. Only to provide victims for the frost. Now with her again, a model east wind was blowing. The passion was gone. The thought of Langon still roused in her a pity that seemed to strain at her heartstrings. But was it really she, really this very rose, who had rested for that one intoxicating instant on his breast? She felt a sort of bitter shame over her own shallowness of feeling. She must surely be a poor creature else how could such a thing have befallen her, and have left so little trace behind?" And then, her hand dabbling in the water, her face raised to the blind, friendly mountains, she would go dreaming far afield. Little vignettes of London would come and go on the inner retina. Smiles and sighs would follow one another. "'How kind he was that time! How amusing this!' or "'How provoking he was that afternoon! How cold that evening!' nothing else. The pronoun remained ambiguous. "'I want a friend,' she said to herself once, as she was sitting far up in the bosom of High Fell. "'I want a friend badly. Yet my lover deserts me, and I send away my friend.' One afternoon Mrs. Thornburgh, the vicar, and Rose were wandering round the churchyard together, enjoying a break of sunny weather after days of rain. Mrs. Thornburgh's personal accent, so to speak, had grown perhaps a little more defined A little more emphatic even than when we first knew her. The vicar, on the other hand, was a trifle greyer, a trifle more submissive, as though on the whole, in the long conjugal contests of life, he was getting clearly worsted as the years went on. But the performance through which his wife was now taking him tried him exceptionally, and she only kept him to it with difficulty. She'd had an attack of bronchitis in the spring and was still somewhat delicate, a fact which to his mind gave her an unfair advantage of him, for she would make use of it to keep constantly before him ideas which he disliked, and in which he considered she took a morbid and unbecoming pleasure. The vicar was of opinion that when his latter end overtook him, he should meet it on the whole as courageously as other men. But he was altogether averse to dwelling upon it, or the adjuncts of it beforehand. Mrs. Thornburg, however, since her illness, had awoke to that inquisitive affectionate interest in these very adjuncts, which many women feel, and it was extremely disagreeable to the vicar. At the present moment she was engaged in choosing the precise spots in the little churchyard where it seemed to her it would be pleasant to rest. There was one corner in particular which attracted her, and she stood now looking at it with measuring eyes and dissatisfied mouth. "'William, I wish you would come here and help me!' The vicar took no notice, but went on talking to Rose. "'William!' imperatively. The vicar turned unwillingly. You know, William, if you wouldn't mind lying with your feet that way, there would be just room for me. But, of course, if you will have them the other way— The shoulders in the old black silk mantle went up, and the grey curls shook dubiously. The vicar's countenance showed plainly that he thought the remark worse than irrelevant. "Uh, My dear, he said crossly, I am not thinking of those things, nor do I wish to think of them. Everything has its time and place. "'It is close on tea, and Miss Rose says she must be going home.' Mrs. Thornburg again shook her head, this time with a disapproving sigh. "'You talk, William,' she said severely, "'as if you were a young man instead of turning sixty-six last birthday.' And again she measured the spaces with her eye, checking the results aloud. But the vicar was obdurately deaf. He strolled on with Rose, who was chattering to him about a visit to Manchester, and the little church-gate clicked behind them hearing it mrs thornburgh relaxed her measurements they were only really interesting to her after all when the vicar was by she hurried after them as fast as her short squat figure would allow and stopped midway to make an exclamation a carriage she said shading her eyes with a very plump hand stopping at greyburn's the one road of the valley was visible from the churchyard winding along the bottom of the shallow green trough for at least two miles. Greybarns was a farmhouse just beyond Burwood, about half a mile away. Mrs. Thornburg moved on, her matronly face aglow with interest. Mary Jenkinson taken ill? she said. Of course, that's Dr. Baker. Well, it's to be hoped it won't be twins this time. But as I told her last Sunday, it's constitutional, my dear. I knew a woman who had three pairs. Five o'clock now. Well, about seven it'll be worth while sending to inquire. When she overtook the vicar and his companion, she began to whisper certain particulars into the ear that was not on Rose's side. The vicar, who, like Uncle Toby, was possessed of a fine natural modesty, would have preferred that his wife would refrain from whispering on these topics in Rose's presence. But he submitted, lest opposition should provoke her into still more audible improprieties, and Rose walked on a step or two in front of the pair, her eyes twinkling a little. At the vicarage gate she was let off with the customary final gossip. Mrs. Thornburg was so much occupied in the fate hanging over Mary Jenkinson that she for once forgot to catechise Rose as to any manageable young men she might have come across in a recent visit to a great country house of the neighbourhood, an operation which formed the invariable pendant to any of Rose's absences. So, with a smiling nod to them both, the girl turned homewards. As she did so, she became aware of a man's figure walking along the space of road between Greybarns and Burwood, the western light behind it. Dr. Baker! But even granting that Mrs. Jenkinson had brought him five miles on a false alarm in the provoking manner of matrons, the shortest professional visit could not be over in this time. She looked again, shading her eyes. She was nearing the gate of Burwood, an involuntarily slackened step. The man who was approaching, catching sight of the slim, girdish figure in the broad hat and pink and white cotton dress, hurried up. The colour rushed to Rose's cheek. In another minute she and Hugh Flaxman were face to face. She could not hide her astonishment. "'Why are you not in Scotland?' she said, after she had given him her hand. "'Lady Helen told me last week she expected you in Rossshire.' Directly the words left her mouth. She felt she had given him an opening. And why had nature played her with this trick of blushing?" "'And because I am here,' he said, smiling, his keen, dancing eyes looking down upon her. He was bronzed, as she had never seen him, and never had he seemed to bring with him such an atmosphere of cool, pleasant strength. "'I have slain so much since the first of July that I can slay no more. I'm not like other men. The Nimrod in me is easily gorged, and goes to sleep after a while. So this is Burwood. He caught her just on the little sweep leading to the gate, and now his eyes swept quickly over the modest old house, with its trim garden, its overgrown porch, and open casement windows. She dared not ask him again why he was there. In the properest manner she invited him to come in and see Mamma. "'I hope Mrs. Laban is better than she was in town. I shall be delighted to see her. But must you go in so soon? I left my carriage half a mile below and have been revelling in the sun and air. I'm loath to go indoors yet a while. Are you busy? Would it trouble you to put me in the way to the head of the valley? Then, if you allow me, I will present myself later." Rose thought his request as little in the ordinary line of things as his appearance. But she turned and walked beside him, pointing out the crags at the head, the great sweep of high fell, and the pass over to Alswater, with as much sang-froid as she was mistress of. He, on his side, informed her that on his way to Scotland he bethought himself that he had never seen the lakes, that he had stopped at Wimborough, was bent on walking over the high fell pass to Arleswater, and making his way thence to Ambleside, Grasmere, and Keswick. "'But you're much too late to-day to get to Owlswater,' cried Rose, incautiously. "'Certainly. You see my hotel?' And he pointed, smiling, to a white farmhouse standing just at the bend of the valley, where the road turned towards Wimbra. I persuaded the good woman there to give me a bed for the night, took my carriage a little farther, then, knowing I had friends in these parts, I came on to explore.' Rose angrily felt her flush getting deeper and deeper. "'You are the first tourist,' she said coolly, "'who has ever stayed in Windale." "'A tourist? I repudiate the name. I am a worshipper at the Shrine of Wordsworth and Nature. had and I long ago defined a tourist as a being with straps.' I defy you to discover a strap about me, and I left my Murray in the railway-carriage!" He looked at her, laughing. She laughed, too. The infection of his strong, sunny presence was irresistible. In London it had been so easy to stand on her dignity, to remember whenever he was friendly that the night before he had been distant. In these green solitudes it was not easy to be anything but natural—the child of the moment. You are neither more practical nor more economical than when I saw you last, she said demurely. When did you leave Norway? They wandered on past the vicarage, talking fast. Mr. Flaxman, who had been joined for a time on his fishing tour by Lord Wainfleet, was giving her an amusing account of the susceptibility to titles shown by the primitive democrats of Norway. As they passed a gap in the vicarage hedge, laughing and chatting, Rose became aware of a window and a grey head hastily withdrawn. Mr. Flaxman was puzzled by the merry flash, instantly suppressed, that shot across her face. Presently they reached the hamlet of High Close, and the house where Mary Backhouse died, and where her father and the poor bedridden Jim still lived. They mounted the path behind it, and plunged into the hazel plantation which had sheltered Robert and Catherine on a memorable night. But when they were through it, Rose turned to the right along a scrambling path leading to the top of the first great shoulder of High Fell. It was a steep climb, though a short one, and it seemed to Rose that when she had once let him help her over a rock her hand was never her own again. He kept it an almost constant prisoner, on one pretext or another, till they were at the top. Then she sank down on a rock out of breath. He stood beside her, lifting his brown wide awake from his brow. The air below had been warm and relaxing. Here it played upon them both with a delicious, life-giving freshness. He looked round on the great hollow bosom of the fell, the crags buttressing it on either hand, the winding greenness of the valley, the white sparkle of the river. "'It reminds me a little of Norway—the same austere and frugal beauty, the same bare valley floors, but no pines, no peaks, no fjords.' "'No,' said Rose scornfully, we are not Norway, and we are not Switzerland. To prevent disappointment, I may at once inform you that we have no glaciers, and that there is perhaps only one place in the district where a man who is not an idiot could succeed in killing himself." He looked at her, calmly smiling. "'You are angry,' he said, because I make comparisons. "'You are wholly on a wrong scent. I never saw a scene in the world that pleased me half as much as this bare valley—that grey roof.' And he pointed to Burburg among its trees. And this knoll of rocky ground?" His look travelled back to her, and her eyes sank beneath it. He threw himself down on the short grass beside her. "'It rained this morning.' She still had the spirit to murmur under her breath. He took not the smallest heed. "'Do you know,' he said, and his voice dropped, "'can you guess at all why I am here to-day?' "'You have never seen the lakes, she repeated in a prim voice her eyes still cast down, the corners of her mouth twitching. "'You stopped at Wimborough, intending to take the pass over to Oswalter, thence to make your way to Ambleside and Keswick. Or was it to Keswick and Ambleside?' She looked up innocently, but the flashing glance she met abashed her again. "'Takween,' he said, "'but you shall not laugh me out of countenance. If I said all that to you just now, may I be forgiven? One purpose, one only brought me from Norway—' For maybe to go to Scotland, drew me to Wimborough, guided me up your valley? The purpose of seeing your face?' It could not be said at that precise moment that he had attained it. Rather, she seemed bent on hiding that face quite away from him. It seemed to him an age before, drawn by the magnetism of his look, her hands dropped, and she faced him, crimson, her breath fluttering a little. Then she would have spoken, but he would not let her. Very tenderly and quietly, his hand possessed itself of hers as he knelt beside her. "'I have been in exile for two months. You sent me. I saw that I troubled you in London. You thought I was pursuing you, pressing you. Your manner said, Go, and I went. But do you think that for one day, or hour, or moment, I have thought of anything else in those Norway woods but of you, and of this blessed moment when I should be at your feet, as I am now?' She trembled. Her hand seemed to leap in his. His gaze melted, enwrapped her. He bent forward. In another moment her silence would have so answered for her that his covetous arms would have stolen about her for good and all. But suddenly a kind of shiver ran through her, a shiver which was half memory, half shame. She drew back violently, covering her eyes with her hand. "'Oh, no, no!' she cried, and her other hand struggled to get free. "'Don't! Don't talk to me so! I... Uh, I have a a confession." He watched her, his lips trembling a little, a smile of the most exquisite indulgence and understanding dawning in his eyes. Was she going to confess to him what he knew so well already? If he could only force her to say it on his breast. But she held him at arm's length. "'You remember—you remember Mr. Langham?' "'Remember him?' echoed Mr. Flaxman fervently. That thought-reading night at Lady Charlotte's, on the way home, he spoke to me. I said I loved him. I did love him. I let him kiss me." Her flush had quite faded. He could hardly tell whether she was yielding or defiant as the words burst from her. An expression, half trouble, half compunction, came into his face. "'I knew,' he said very low. Or rather, I guessed and for an instant it occurred to him to unburden himself, to ask her pardon for that espionage of his. But no, no, not till he had her safe. "'I guessed I mean that there had been something grave between you. I saw you were sad. I would have given the world to comfort you.' Her lip quivered childishly. "'I said I loved him that night. The next morning he wrote to me that it could never be.' He looked at her a moment, embarrassed. The conversation was not easy. Then the smile broke once more. And you have forgotten him as he deserved. If I were not sure of that, I could wish him all the tortures of the inferno. As it is, I cannot think of him. I cannot let you think of him. Sweet, do you know that ever since I first saw you, the one thought of my days, the dream of my nights, the purpose of my whole life, has been to win you? There was another in the field. I knew it. I stood by and waited. He failed you. I knew he must in some form or other. Then I was hasty, and you resented it. Little tyrant, you made yourself a rose with many thorns. But tell me, tell me it is all over, your pain, my waiting. Make yourself sweet to me. Unfold to me at last." An instant she wavered. His bliss was almost in his grasp. Then she sprang up, and Flaxman found himself standing by her, rebuffed and surprised. "'No! No!' she cried, holding out her hands to him, though, all the time. "'Oh, it is too soon. I should despise myself. I do despise myself. It tortures me that I can change and forget so easily. It ought to t- t- torture you. Oh, don't ask me yet to—' "'To t- 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 be my wife,' he said calmly, his cheek a little flushed, his eye meeting hers with a it that strove so hard for self-control. It was almost sternness. "'Not yet,' she pleaded, and then after a moment's hesitation she broke into the most appealing smiles, though the tears were in her eyes, hurrying out the broken, beseeching words. "'I want a friend so much, a a real friend. Since Catherine left I have had no one. I have been running riot. Take me in hand. Write to me. Scold me. Advise me. I will be your pupil. I will tell you everything. You seem to be so fearfully wise, so much older, so Don't be vexed. And and in in six months?" She turned away, rosy as her name. He held her still so rigidly that her hands were almost hurt. The shadow of the hat fell over her eyes. The delicate outlines of the neck and shoulders in the pretty pale dress were defined against the green hill background. He studied her deliberately, a hundred different expressions sweeping across his face. A debate of the most feverish interest was going on within him. Her seriousness at the moment, the chances of the future, her character his own—all these knotty points entered into it had to be weighed and decided with lightning rapidity. But Hugh Flaxman was born under a lucky star, and the natal charm held good. At last he gave a long breath. He stooped and kissed her hands. "'So be it.' for six months i will be your guardian your friend your teasing implacable censor at the end of that time i will be well never mind what i I give you fair warning he released her rose clasped her hands before her and stood drooping now that she had gained her point all her bright mocking independence seemed to have vanished she might have been in reality the tremulous timid child she seemed his spirits rose. He began to like the role she had assigned to him. The touch of unexpectedness in all she said and did acted with exhilarating force on his fastidious romantic sense. "'Now then,' he said, picking up her gloves from the grass, "'you have given me my rights. I will begin to exercise them at once. I must take you home, the clouds coming up again, and on the way you will kindly give me a full, true, and minute account Of those two months while you have been so dangerously left to your own devices. She hesitated and began to speak with difficulty, her eyes on the ground. But by the time they were in the main Shermore Path again, and she was not so weakly dependent on his physical aid, her spirits too returned. Pacing along with her hands behind her, she began by degrees to throw into her accounts of our various visits and performances plenty of her natural malice. And after a bit, as that strange storm of feeling which had assailed her on the mountain-top abated something of its bewildering force, certain old grievances began to raise very lively heads in her. The smart of Lady Fauntleroy's ball was still there. She had not yet forgiven him all those relations, and the teasing image of Lady Florence woke up in her. "'It seems to me,' he said at last, dryly, as he opened a gate for her not far from Burwood, "'that you have been making yourself agreeable to a vast number of people—' In my new capacity of censor, I should like to warn you that there is nothing so bad for the character as universal popularity." "'I've not got a thousand and one important cousins,' she explained, her lip curling. "'If I want to please, I must take pains, else nobody minds me.' He looked at her attentively, his handsome face aglow with animation. "'What can you mean by that?' he said slowly. But she was quite silent, her head well in air. "'Cousins,' he repeated, "'cousins, and clearly meant as a taunt at me. "'Now when did you see my cousins?' "'I grant that I possess a monstrous and indefensible number.' "'I have it. You think that at Lady Fauntleroy's ball I devoted myself too much to my family, and too little to—' "'Not at all!' cried Rose hastily, adding with charming incoherence, while she twisted a sprig of honeysuckle in her restless fingers. "'Some cousins, of course, are pretty.' he paused an instant. Then a light broke over his face, and his burst of quiet laughter was infinitely pleasant to hear. Rose got redder and redder. She realised dimly that she was hardly maintaining the spirit of their contract, and that he was studying her with eyes inconveniently bright and penetrating. "'Shall I quote to you,' he said, a sentence of Stern's. "'If you violate our contract, I must plead extenuating circumstances. Stern is admonishing a young friend as to his manners in society. You are in love, he says, Tomio, but do not imagine that the fact bestows on you a license to behave like a bear towards all the rest of the world. Affection may surely conduct thee through an avenue of women to her who possesses thy heart, without tearing the flounces of any of their petticoats, not even those of little cousins of seventeen. I say this, you'll observe, in the capacity you've assigned me. In another capacity I venture to think I could justify myself still better." "'My guardian and director,' cried Rose, "'must not begin his functions by misleading and sophistical quotations from the classics.' He did not answer for a moment. They were at the gate of Burwood, under a thick screen of wild cherry-trees. The gate was half open, and his hand was on it. "'And my pupil,' he said, bending to her, must not begin by challenging the prisoner whose hands she has bound, or he will not answer for the consequences." His words were threatening, but his voice, his fine expressive face, were infinitely sweet. By a kind of fascination she never afterwards understood, Rose, for answer, startled him and herself. She bent her head, she laid her lips on the hand which held the gate, and then she was through it in an instant. He followed her in vain. He never overtook her again till at the drawing-room door she paused with amazing dignity. Mama, she said, throwing it open, here is Mr. Flaxman. He has come from Norway and is on his way to Oswater. I'll go and speak to Margaret about tea. End of Book 7 Chapter 47